knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com What would it be like to be a cowboy living in the wilds of Arizona in the 21st century? Do such things even happen? I think so. I met a gentleman, his name is Aram Von Benedict, and he started popping up as the uh, author of some really interesting hunting articles in the magazines. This was about six, eight years ago. And then I met the young man. I say young man because at my age, everybody's a young man. <laughs> but yeah, and I suspect he's around his mid-30s to early 40s or so. And I was really impressed because the guy knows his stuff. He knows guns. He knows ammo. And what he had to write about hunting was just, in my experience, spot on. So I was really attracted to his story. And it is quite a story. He grew up essentially a cowboy out in the wilderness. And he knows how to do most anything and everything. He's one of those handyman kind of guys. But he also seems to have gotten an education along the line somewhere because he writes beautifully. And honestly, and that's what I really respect about someone who's trying to communicate the experiences. So I think we are very lucky today to have as our guest, Aram Von Benedict, who is currently living on a ranch with his family and is totally off the grid. And he's comfortable doing that. He's got young children and his wife is a cowgirl, I think, from what I've seen of the pictures. And that whole family is living out on the land and he is still managing to write for several magazines. And we're going to find out some of his hunting adventures, some of his favorite rifles and loads, and just have ourselves a heck of a good time. So let's welcome Aram Von Benedict. Aram, welcome to RSO Podcast. Well, thanks, Ron. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's my honor to have you. I have to correct you on the age, though. I'm a little bit longer in the tooth than you expected. I'm actually late 40s. Whoa. Well, I, I was trying I just, to cut you some slack. I just come across as a little bit more youthful, maybe probably mentally, than I should. <laughs> well, whatever it is, you strike me as a young man, and you're living one heck of a crazy lifestyle out there. Now, well, exactly what is going on with you? You grew up, as I remember you telling me years ago, as a ranch kid. Somewhere in Arizona, is that right? No, I, I grew up in southern Utah in a little tiny town. Um, then it was, uh, we moved there in, in the mid 80s. I was uh, 10 years old, and there was 75 permanent residents mm-hmm. at the time. The nearest town was 28 miles away. The nearest stoplight was 100 miles away, and the nearest supermarket was 100 miles away. But over time, this this little town kind of went the way of the world, unfortunately, and uh, there was no more real habitat left for a uh, a conservative-minded um, hunter and cowboy, I guess you might say. And the town had exploded. There was 300, over 300 permanent residents, and it was just too big for me. So I... <laughs> I can understand that. Up and headed to Arizona. <laughs> oh man! Now, did you grow up hunting as a boy? I suspect you did. You know, not so much. Actually, my really? my father surprisingly did not approve of hunting. Um, hmm. We we raised a lot of food, um, farmed with draft horses, raised our own beef, and so forth. And he just he wasn't uh, into hunting wildlife and. I had a fascination for it and, you know, given time I started to do it on my own hook and um, I had some friends who hunted quite a bit and their father was a 
a truly savvy hunter and outdoorsman. And if there's such a thing as a modern mountain man, he was it. And so he kind of mentored me a little bit along, along with his boys. And, and I learned a lot from him and, um, just kind of snowballed from there. Hmm. That's interesting. So you were hunting mule deer, I suspect maybe pronghorn. Maybe some up not on so birds. Not pronghorn. Just, There's not not many pronghorn where I'm from, but mule deer and elk. Um, mule deer to and elk. Great extent. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you obviously took to it like a duck to water because I've read some of your articles and you've had quite some adventures. Um, didn't I read one time you were out in, uh, well, maybe it was southern Utah in the desert tracking down a mule deer or something? I mean, you've taken some fairly elaborate um out there, shall we say, hunts. You're not your typical drive down the Forest Service road and jump out and go back in a few hundred yards. You're getting back out there, aren't you? Yeah, uh, I guess you'd say I am. I, <laughs> you know, I really kind of resent um, the so many hunting people hunting on quads and ATVs. And so one of my favorite kind of phrases is that I like to hunt using the quads God gave me. Uh, and my, I like to throw a backpack on and hike or horse pack into the back country. Um, and I've done that everywhere from, uh, Alaska to the Mexico border, you know, in, in on the Arizona side, um, and had pretty good luck at it. Uh, you know, I prefer to hunt out of a big bivy camp, um, where I'm shadowing the animals and, um, you know, spending the night downwind of them. And, um, I don't have to hike back and forth from the trailhead every morning and monkey with all of that nonsense that just seems to get in the way of actually having a good hunt. Hmm. So you're a backpack hunter, horsepack, uh, pretty much wilderness. That's your preferred style and location? Yeah, I don't like to um, compete. You know, it's not my favorite to have a lot of competition where I'm hunting, and I really do enjoy getting way out there. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I remember w one time years ago that I was, I was looking for a, a really good spot to hunt elk, um, in Utah, which is, that's a complicated issue for another day probably, but, um, Utah is a hard spot to kill a big bull, um, unless you have a limited entry tag, which is darn near impossible to draw these days. And. I was on a ridge, uh, nearly 13,000 feet high. It was about 12,500 feet up on my horse. And, and I was looking into the distance at a little green emerald of a, a header at the top of this canyon that reached miles and miles away from the nearest road. And I knew right then that I was looking at a potential elk hunting hotspot. And sure enough, uh, it took me a couple of years, but I managed to get back in there with my horses. Um, it's a 13 mile trip to where I camped and then we'd go deeper from there to hunt. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we, we had really good success. Um, in fact, a hundred percent success killing quite nice branch antlers, bulls in there. And it, this is, this is myself and one or two chosen friends. I was very careful who I took in there. Hunter success in this area really hovers uh, on average between nine and 10% during the rifle season so it's not an easy place to kill a bull but this spot um you know it was a long ways from any place that people could get to easily and and really an awesome place to hunt yeah yeah that's great so you know i've done a, lot, a similar lot of hunting and not quite as serious as you know. i've gone back 17 miles for a week or two and on a sheep hunts and uh and after i did my own, I started going with outfitters because of the, what my job was writing for magazines. I would get assignments and you would go with an outfitter. And of course, that makes it so much easier because they're doing most of the grunt work. You but backpack hunting and stuff, it's attractive uh, increasingly. You know, I've been around a little longer than you and no one did it back in the day. When I started in the 70s, it was pretty unusual to have someone throw a pack on his back and head out the way you do now. But there's a lot of uh, young folks taking that on now, it seems like to me. Have you noticed that? I have. Um, and it's, you know, to my way of thinking, it's it's both a, a good and a bad thing. Good because um, 
there's there are people learning those skills and developing the ability to to get way back and to hunt hard and effectively and becoming more familiar and intimate with the wilderness and the backcountry that's a good thing on the flip side it's almost too good of a a good thing um you know back when i started doing it like you say there wasn't there weren't many people doing it and it mm-hmm. was it was a good way to really find some pristine hunting nowadays uh you know i i, I kind of like to call them navy seal hunters there's there's people that train all year long to hunt a week or two or three utah's notorious for this kind of hunter and they not only do they train physically and mentally and with their all of their equipment uh, they also utilize technology to the fullest extent possible and that's you know that's heck i i try to I don't try to use technology, but there are certain things that I like to use, like laser range finders, and I enjoy having a, a you know a, an in-reach device that I can text my wife and tell her, "Yep, I'm still alive," and you know, so forth. But these guys, they really take it to another level, long-range shooting and so forth, and they they're becoming very, very deadly. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, I think in a in a certain sense, that's impacting uh, our our fair chase. N- not that that what they're doing is not fair chase. It's it's more that they're just becoming so effective that I think um, eventually seasons are going to have to be curtailed and uh, you know strategies adjusted because these hunters are becoming so effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that almost seems inevitable. I mean, it's how how many years has this been going on? We went from uh, bows and arrows sure. to muzzle loaders to and on up the scale. Yeah. And at some point, I think it's up to each individual to pull the plug. You know, when does your hunt become too much technology and not enough hunt? Sure, um, I'm yeah. I'm not going to be the one to draw the line on this. You know, no, I think nor am I. You know, I I approve of of skill and I admire riflemen, you know, that's, that's kind of the American way to be a good shooter, yeah. a good hunter and to, to develop those skills. And I like that, you know, yeah. it makes us, but it will definitely nation. result in fewer tags just because sure. if you get your harvest goes up, you're going to have to cut back. There's just, just only so much wildlife out there. So, well, speaking of the technology and stuff, I know you don't dote on long range rifles. I know you know about them and you have used them, I believe, but I think you've also shot a lot with muzzle loaders, haven't you? I have. I, uh, I grew up competing with them, started at, I think it was age 13 that I started competing with muzzle loaders and not your modern muzzle loader, but traditional long rifles, uh, full mm-hmm. stocks, uh, and I, I really loved shooting flintlocks. <clears throat> and so, yeah, I did. And that was, that was quite a passion for me. And I, I hunted with them quite a bit as well. Um, in fact, one Woof. of, one of the most, um, remarkable hunts I've ever been on was with the flintlock muzzle loader. Uh, what was that? And, and I can, I can tell you that story if you'd like. Yes, I would. <laughs> So, um, I mentioned these limited entry tags in Utah a few minutes ago, and it's, uh, that's, like I say, that's another ball of wax, but I did draw one. Uh, I got started early enough in, in the system that I eventually built enough points and drew a limited entry tag on one of the best two units in Utah. Uh, it's where I lived and grew up and cowboyed as a kid. And it's where I had guided and outfitted for uh, 10 or 12 years. So I drew this muzzleloader tag and I thought to myself, what, what is really going to be significant to me about this hunt? Should I get a, a modern muzzleloader and put a scope on it and try to kill the biggest bull on the mountain? Or should I go into this with the thought process that I really want to enjoy every minute of the experience? Because the chance of me drawing another tag like that in my lifetime, I think I'd have a better chance of going over and, and marrying the Queen of England. You know, I just don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> so that's what I decided to do. And I 
I had a, I have a friend that was a bit of a mentor when I was competing with the black powder stuff. Um, his name's Steve Baxter he lives in Tennessee. He's getting a little bit long in the tooth now, but he holds far more, I think well more than double the, the shooting records, world records with the flintlock of any other man alive. And he's a blacksmith by trade. And I, I asked him to build me a rifle and he did, uh, hand forged everything, but the lock and the barrel. 54 caliber, 42 inch barrel, um, Siler left hand flint lock. Um, I'm right handed, but I shoot a rifle left handed because my left eye is more keen. And uh, I used hand cast round lead balls patched in uh, linen. Wow. Over 110 grains of 3F GoX powder <laughs> with that flint lock. And I was, I was lethal to about. 140 yards with that under the right circumstances, but much preferred to keep it under about a hundred. Hunted uh, several days. The first evening I spotted a bull with 12 cows under some small quakey trees. um, And it was, it was too late. He was indistinct. I could not really make him out, but I knew that he was something very special. Um, and so I kept looking for him. Uh, I, I memorized his bugle because that was the one thing I could identify about him from that encounter in the in the wee hours of dusk. Then two days later, uh, I found him. <clears throat> and there several herds had collided on this thick, quaky, encrusted ridge. And uh, the bulls were just going crazy. There was two big herd bulls. And then there was... Um, probably about 10 or 12 satellite bulls that were just running amok around the edges of these herds. The two herd bulls are trying to sort their harems out, get their girls back and send the other guys, girls over to him. And it just was a mess because these satellite bulls were interfering everywhere. And it was incredible. Um, you know, one of those moments that you just don't forget as an elk hunter. And then I heard this bull and figured out that he was one of those herd bulls, um, Interestingly, the satellite bulls running around this herd, uh, you know, they were in the 320 to 340 range uh, of size. And that'll tell you the quality of animals on this mountain. Um, Mm -hmm. In in three hard days of hunting, I passed up exactly 35 bulls uh, inside of my range. I passed up uh, several bulls in the 350s. one verifiable because I scored him later after a friend shot him. I passed him up twice, once at 25 yards and once at 60 yards. He was a seven by seven. Um, anyway, back to the story. It's getting late in the evening again, and under this canopy, it was getting really dim. My brother was with me, and he's, he's a pretty salty hunter himself, as you know. Um, very, very good shot. Um, and then this bull, uh, this big herd bull started circling herd towards us, and we got a look at him. My brother had to, had his binoculars on him, and <laughs> he may not like me telling this story, but it's too good to leave out. So he dropped his binoculars, and he grabbed me by the shoulder, and he's, his voice was shaking, his whole body was shaking, and he started stammering, you need to shoot that bull. And I think he said it about 14 times in the next three seconds. <laughs> And I had to reach up and push his hand off my shoulder and said, calm down. You're going to mess me up. Fortunately, I was still somewhat calm. I'd seen the bull. I knew I had an idea of what he was, and I knew it was the bull I'd been looking for from that first evening. But I didn't have a shot. Uh, And then he moved. He walked a little bit closer and turned broadside at about 60 to 65 yards. um, And I could see just a sliver of him between two big quakey trunks. I looked with my binocular and it was the crease of his shoulder. His left side was towards me. And so I raised that long old flintlock. And uh, it took me some time to resolve the sights because, like I said, it was getting dim under that canopy. Eventually got him figured out and closed that trigger off. And, of course, it flashed and banged. And and the bull wheeled and crashed back the way he'd come, uh, you know, running hard as a, as a hard-hit bull elk will. 
And as soon as he went over the crest of this little hill about 20 yards into his run, we heard this gigantic crash and then it went silent. Well, that's when I started to shake. <laughs> I think I spilled more. I think I spilled more powder on the forest floor than I got in my gun. But I managed to get reloaded, and and uh, we slipped up there and and came over this rise, and there he lay. He'd hit about a an eight inch deadfall quakey that was kind of propped up um, against another tree, and and shattered that. That was the gigantic crash we'd heard. And he was laying there, and, and as we walked up and I looked at him, um, I knew that he was a 400-inch bull. It was the Oy. first one I'd seen on the ground. I'd seen some on the hoof, but personally had never seen a 400-inch bull on the ground. Wow. And, uh, yeah, my brother and my other buddy, Greg Nunn, who's a fantastic elk hunter and, and flint napper, um, very, very good guy. He was there with me. And we wrapped our arms around each other and jumped up and down, hooted and hollered and screamed, and then we cried. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, pretty magnificent moment. Um, took a few photographs and got him quartered out and started off the mountain. And uh, as we were processing him, quartering him off, this just, you know how like a late monsoon thunderstorm hitting the high country can be, just lightning, jagged lightning flashing. Um, thunder rolling and bouncing off of the ridges and we were headed down off the side of this ridge and um, my brother was carrying my rifle because I couldn't bear to leave those big old antlers in the woods and we were hustling it hot footing down off this ridge and the, it was just a curtain of water came across and drenched us to the bone and just glorious <laughs> <laughs> we, we got home at about 1 a.m we'd been camped on the mountain but we headed off with the with the, the antlers and the gear that we had my brother says man i was uncomfortable coming off that bare ridge face he says i felt like a lightning rod carrying that big old long-barreled gun <laughs> yeah no kidding i was thinking that when you said you gave him the gun i thought that was a smart right. move yep. <laughs> it was <laughs> but yeah that bull ended up uh he grosses 402 and that's uh 385 and change as a non-typical um he's a boone and crockett bull yeah. Ironically, he's uh, he is the the biggest bull ever killed with a flintlock rifle on record, and I have oh, really a, a, he is yeah I've got a letter from the the chairman of the Long Hunter Society, which is the mm -hmm. muzzleloader record keeping uh, society, stating that he is the biggest bull ever killed with a flintlock. Um, yeah, and, and it's you know it's. All all animals killed with muzzleloaders, whether they're a flintlock long rifle or a stainless steel synthetic stock scoped modern muzzleloader, are all categorized. You know, they're they're in the same uh, book essentially. Mm -hmm. And I think he's number eighteen overall, or was at the time that I had him scored. Um, yeah, but number a number one is a flintlock bull. Pretty. That cool. is a heck heck of an accomplishment with any tool, including modern rifles with scopes obviously. Uh, but I think the real trophy here, you've gotten two fantastic trophies. And one of, of course, is the adventure to, to yeah. be able to make that kind of a wild adventure in this day and age, you know, in a state, as you mentioned, where it's, there's so much pressure and it's so hard to get tags and such. That is just a testament to your determination and skill as, yeah. as well as I think some pretty good conservation programs that must be going on in Utah to grow those kinds of elk. Well, yeah, there, there, there are, uh, and you know, there's, I, I'm quite conflicted about that, honestly, and that's probably not a subject that's good to, to broach here because my voice might raise a couple octaves. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, let's, you know, let's thing, skip it. <laughs> the thing that I loved about that hunt was that I went into it just for the experience. That was my priority. And yet I came out with this. Just incredible animal. Um, yeah. And, and the experience, you know, I slept on the mountain with the elk. I listened to him bugle all all, all day and all night. You know, I shadowed mm -hmm. him through the dog hair quickie and, and was close enough. Like I say, I passed up uh, numerous bulls at less than 25 yards from him, and they never yeah. knew I was there. And that's just, that's really an awesome experience. So, yeah, yeah it worked out. Well, that's wonderful. 
Hey, let's swing it over to modern rifles. I know you hunt with a lot of bold action rifles. What are some of your favorites? Are you a lever action guy at all? Are you mostly a bold action man? You know, I love lever actions, um, and I've carried them extensively on horseback, and I have hunted with them a little bit. I hunted with an 1895 uh, Winchester chambered in 30-06 in Africa in 2016 and killed my first kudu bull. And that was a really neat experience. I, I did that hunt. It was my first ever trip to Africa. And I took the same firearms that Teddy Roosevelt hunted with and his legendary 1909 and 1910 safari. Um, he had a, a sporadized uh, Springfield, military Springfield rifle. Um, and then he had a, a Winchester 1895. Now his was chambered in 405. Um, mine was chambered in 30-06, but still kind of cool. Right? So I shot that kudu and then, uh, you know, I've, I've hunted mule deer, uh, with lever actions. Um, and I do, I love them. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, you can't not love a lever action if you're a cowboy. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just I figured you had to because look at your hat, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you do you then, carry one on the ranch when you're out working? Um, not working so much. I usually just carry a sidearm when I'm working. Although I have carried one the last couple of days because we needed beef. Um, our ranch has some some significantly rugged country. Uh on the on the upper country and uh there are wild cattle up there always have been always will um Hmm. they belong to to me uh, since i own the ranch and the allotment and so we went up and found um a wild bull and shot him today uh for our beef um my son actually shot him but i had a a lever action uh pre-64 uh winchester 94 and 34 30 30 on my saddle so mm-hmm. yeah yep. great I, saddle I gun today yeah classic stuff yeah yeah so you you've got experience with a lot of different firearms which are your mm-hmm. preferences though which would you prefer or do you just like to always experiment with something a little bit different you know i think for a hunting rifle the kind of hunting i do my preference is a bolt action rifle preferably a lightweight, like really lightweight one. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> has to be built right so that it still is easy to shoot. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, there's a number of different rifle manufacturers that I really love. I love X-Bolts, uh, Browning X-Bolts. I love Winchester Model 70s, especially those old pre-64s. Um <clears throat> I really like Weatherby's. I think their their backcountry rifle is phenomenal. Um, Gunworks makes some extraordinary rifles. Of course, they're you know you may have to uh, sell your house and just have a gun if you want one of those. <laughs> but they're you know they're worth the money if you're going to buy a, a four wheeler or, or a Gunworks rifle. They're about the same price, and I'd say ditch the four wheeler and buy the rifle and use the quads God <laughs> gave you. Um, I, I really like Kimber's, uh, mountain ascent rifle on their little 84, uh, action. It's very slender, lightweight and balances like a Latin dancer, um, shoots very well, controlled feed extraction. Um, you know, the triggers are good. Uh, I I like that rifle. Yeah. I like that one too. You're, you're discussing a lot of my favorites. The only one I'd throw in there in addition to what you've mentioned is the Mel Forbes new ultralight arms model 20. I don't know if you've yeah, ever worked with absolutely. them. Absolutely. And you know, beauty. someday I hope to have one of his rifles. I don't have one, but someday I hope to. Yeah. That's you. a great one. What about uh, cartridges? Any favorites there? Yes. Um, many. <laughs> you've got I, my uh, problem. Yeah. I think it's a common gun rider affliction, right? <laughs> so I, I really like the 30 six. It's what I grew up hunting with. And I think it's hard to argue with that as an all around cartridge. Mm-hmm. Now, probably my all time favorite cartridge. If I had to only hunt, only shoot with one round for the rest of my life, it would probably be a 280 Ackley improved. Um, it's just, we're drinking uh, the same Kool-Aid. Just, 
right? There's too much panache mixed up with too much history, mixed up with too much performance not to be uh, head over heels in love with that cartridge. Yeah. And it's a performer. You know, my, my son shot that bull today with it. And, and here again, I very, very cautious about long range hunting, but this kid's 13 and he can, he can shoot superbly. And, uh, this bull was about to get away from us. He was 520 yards away and he smoked him with a 280 Ackley Kimber mountain ascent. My wow. bull went 30 yards and tumbled down the hill to a double long shot. You know, it was, it was perfect. Yeah. And, uh, nice. so yeah, I love that cartridge. Others that I really like, I, I really like the 6.5 Creed more. I know there's a lot of haters out there that don't, but I like it. Uh, especially for young shooters or recoil sensitive shooters. Um, my wife and my daughter, oldest daughter have shot numerous deer and elk with that cartridge. You have to be careful on elk and make sure your placement's good. Use a good quality bullet. Um, yeah. So I like that. Um, I like the three, seven, five H and H, um, yeah, 30, 30. I could go on two seventy. I like the two seventy. Oh, I know you could (laughs) see you are going on. Can't shut the guy up once you get him started. (laughs) (laughs) So what, um, kind of plans do you have for the future? You've been to Alaska, you've been to the wilderness in the Rocky mountains, west and you've been to africa just one time two times you're going back to any of these places or you got some other ones in mind well i one of my things that i really truly enjoy is hunting new places learning about the flora and the fauna and learning the topography uh, smelling the smells seeing the, the sights you know becoming uh, acquainted with the local wildlife that I'm hunting. I really, really like that. So I hope to continue to get to experience unusual places, uh, or, or at least unfamiliar places to me. Um, yeah, I've been to Africa three times. Um, and once in, in Namibia, the second trip I hunted both South Africa and then Namibia and the third trip, Mozambique, uh, way deep in the bush. That was pretty awesome. All of them Mm -hmm. were awesome. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hunt New Zealand, but I, I kind of want to try to hunt as the locals do there. Um, the, the free range stuff rather than, uh, the estate stuff. I would, that's not to say that I wouldn't enjoy an estate hunt. I think I probably would, but what really gets me going is that hardcore do it yourself stuff. Yeah. Uh, Alaskan caribou. Um, love to go after moose again in Alaska. Um, Alaska, uh, Kodiak Island or similar for, for, uh, Sitka blacktail deer. Uh, yeah, there's, there's more. I could go on. <laughs> uh, yeah. You've got the similar problems. All right. I think have- probably what I would really love to hunt the most is sheep. Um, and I'll probably never will, honestly, because I don't live in Alaska or Canada and I'm not financially uh, capable of of affording a guided hunt anywhere. Yeah. So, you know, it's if that happens, it'll be a blessing. Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate that these hunts have gotten so expensive, but it's supply and demand as, yeah. as well as the logistics of getting there. And you start talking airplane time and fuel to fly into the backcountry up there. and and then it, the by ma- mandatory by regulation, you have to have an outfitter, and he's not going to go for free. So, right. yeah, it's yeah. it's it's unfortunate, but you are fortunate to have been able to do what you've done in your home country down there. I mean, even yes. I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of people listening who think, "Oh, how cool would that be to ride your horses with your family back on your ranch up to the high country for feral bulls, and and bring the meat back." <laughs> For the family's meat, and you know, the, even that isn't a, a crazy adventure that people don't get anymore. Well, and it, it is a crazy adventure, yeah, yeah. I mean, your whole lifestyle there. I mean, you're living on a ranch that's off the grid. Did I mention that yet? Have we said anything about that? I don't know if you have. You're compl- I think we don't we haven't mentioned that. So this family is living off the grid. How many children do you have? You're raising some kids. I there, have right? five. The oldest daughter is at college currently, so. I'm down okay. to just uh, 
four ranch hands currently. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is so interesting because it's just not a lifestyle that Americans are used to anymore. It used to be common, obviously, with the pioneers and the ranchers and the settlers and the farmers and stuff. But you're, you're harking back to the 1890s here, and you're still able to do it. That's crazy in this time and day and age. Yeah, you know, it, it is remarkable, and I count myself very fortunate to to get to live this lifestyle and it's it's an interesting thing um but there is a a small contingent of america that still lives this kind of lifestyle and uh you know i'm fortunate to rub shoulders with them pretty commonly uh these days living where i do and doing what i do um and they're some of the most capable, savvy, good-hearted, tough people you'll ever meet in your life. Uh, mm. You know, uh, people live a long way from town. They might they might shop once a month, you know, for food. Um, if that, uh, if they have electricity, it's from a solar system or a generator. Um, you know, water water is from a well or a spring. Uh, Spend a lot of time on horseback and working with livestock, and uh, you know it's an interesting thing. But they're the, the cowboy way of life, in, in the truest sense, is still very alive in certain parts of the country. And Arizona, there's this subculture, you know, underneath the rich retirees, or, or even just the retirees that buy up Sedona and Scottsdale and mm-hmm. and so forth um, in the back country. And riding through the brush and, uh, you know, pushing cattle across these big old rocky, bouldery, cactus-covered ridges, there is still a, a population of, of real, true cowboys. Hmm. And I'm, you know, I can't really claim to be one of them. I try. <laughs> but there are cowboys that are so much better than I am that it's it's kind of embarrassing. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I like to do it though. I do enjoy being on a horse and, and I love to rope and, uh, you know, I just love to be out in that country. There's being a cowboy is, is not a way you're ever going to get rich. However, every cowboy I know has an absolutely awesome office. An awesome what? Office. Place that oh, he works. Office, his office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. 360 it's, degrees. His office is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can believe that. Yeah. yeah. So how many years have you been at it there on the ranch? Uh, here on this ranch, two and a half. We moved from Utah two and a half years ago. Were you ranching in Utah too? In a small sense. Like I say, the town that we lived in and I grew up in cowboying and uh, hunting and working was kind of overrun with people that uh, just weren't like-minded, you know, as good people, many of them, but just not like-minded. And land prices, uh, you know, it was a gateway town to the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. Mm-hmm. And uh, that monument really ended a way of life there. Um, you know, they brought in this monument to protect this pristine place well, it was pristine because people had been ranching it and leaving it alone for, you know, over a century. And then they, they instituted this monument and brought in literally millions of people. And it's it's no longer pristine. And the ranchers no longer flourish there. But anyway, land prices, because of that monument, went up uh, tenfold almost overnight. Uh, you know, back in the day, you could buy a pretty decent acre of land for a thousand bucks and now you'll pay over 30,000 and it's pretty impossible for a young rancher or farmer to get started with those kind of land prices it's impossible to pay it off yeah Yeah. and so we were kind of starved out of there honestly it was like there you know there we were there's no longer you know a place to live the life that we wanted to live Mm mm-hmm have you noticed any interest in uh, young people, I, especially after COVID? I noticed there's a big increase in young people who are buying firearms and yes. wanting to learn to hunt. Have you seen a similar thing with cowboying? You know, I think so. Um, and, and not just cowboying, but, um, you know, that's kind of like a, a special 
population in a, in a wider contingent of people that really want to just kind of get back to the basics. They want to learn how to, to do for themselves, to grow food, to mm-hmm. harvest food. And there's, you know, this is where I think a significant, a significant portion of the uptick in hunter interest comes from. There's a lot of people out there that want to learn how to put their own meat on the table. And as, as you know, wild meat is some of the healthiest out there. And, and, uh, you know, there's also a big movement towards healthy eating these days uh, has been for some time and it's not going away. It's just getting stronger and that's a good thing. But yes, I think there's, there are a lot of young folks that want to learn how to do for themselves. They don't Mm -hmm. want to be dependent upon society so much and the grocery store. Yeah, we've discovered here recently grocery stores can kind of get empty shelves from time to time, and the prices can get kind of steep. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> are you uh, you producing most of your food there locally then? Are you able to have you a garden? You know, we try. We have a garden. Um, our growing season is pretty fantastic here where we're at. Um, ironically, like in Utah, we couldn't grow anything in the wintertime. Here, we struggle to grow anything in midsummer, June, July, and August. It's simply too hot uh, mm-hmm. and, and too much sun. <clears throat> uh, but we do have fruit trees that we've put out. We've got uh, figs and apples and apricots and cherries and peaches and nectarines and pears and all kinds of uh, other stuff, uh, citrus, grapefruits, lemons, oranges. So we've got fruit fruit trees set out and all the my kids are broken hearted when I tell them we have to pick the, the fruit off for the first couple of years so that the tree can grow instead of just eating it, <laughs> you know, from these little five foot tall trees, they're babies. They got to grow. So let them blossom and then you got to thin them. Um, but we grow, uh, you know, other food, kale, tomatoes, uh, beans, peas, cucumbers, squash, watermelon, cantaloupe, you know, as, as we can find time. Cool. So you really are living the pioneer lifestyle. Yeah, in a sense, except, you know, we can get in a truck and get to town in an hour if we need, uh, you know, a part or or something, you know. Yeah, you didn't have to tell us that part. You could have just kept that under <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to make a, you out to be a hero here. It's a three-day ride on a horse to the nearest town. <laughs> okay, <laughs> now we're talking, folks. <laughs> oh, man. Well, listen, we really need to say something about bullets because a lot of my listeners love to find out information about bullets and what works. We're arguing it all the time. You know, do does a, a copper bullet do anything good? Should we stick with the bonded lead core bullets or what has been your experience? I've had plenty of my own, but yeah, they've heard me talk about bullets plenty. What are your experience with bullets? We all know cartridges. What about a bullet? What do you want for a deer bullet versus an elk bullet versus, say, a moose bullet? Well, you know, my favorite hunting bullets are all full metal jackets. They just penetrate so well. (laughs) (laughs) I should have never asked. (laughs) Yeah, you shouldn't have asked. Okay, so um, I haven't used copper bullets a lot, although I do believe they're pretty good. Uh, You know, you're... uh, your homogenous solid copper or gilding metal bullet. Uh, I've used Hornady's ELDX bullets a, a great deal, and I've had good luck with those. Some people believe that they fail um, because they tend to come apart. The The jacket and the core separates about the time the bullet reaches the far side of the animal. Um, to me, you know, if I can say, well, how did you know that? And they say, well, I got it out of the animal. And to me, that bullet didn't fail. <laughs> they, they pulled it out of a dead animal, right? Yeah. I hear However, you. you know, I don't believe it's it's the best bullet out there because it does come apart. It's very accurate, uh, very aerodynamic, uh, and I like those elements. Um, I am a bit of an accuracy snob. I, I don't have a lot of interest in, in rifles or cartridges or bullets that don't shoot supremely well. Uh, I love nozzler bullets, Acubons. Um, the partitions, you know, that right back to the accuracy thing, they're not 
perhaps quite as accurate as an AccuBond or or an ELDX, um, but they penetrate so well and perform so well, and they're ac they're they're still pretty accurate. Um, probably to my way of thinking, the best bullet out there for an all around bullet. Um, you know, you can confidently shoot. I'm sorry, what's that? We need a drum roll here before you say it. Oh, sure. That'll be good. Yes, please. <laughs> uh, you know, you can shoot an animal from from five yards to 500 yards with this bullet, and it's going to perform perfectly um, and a lot further if you care to go there. Uh, and that's Federal's Terminal Ascent bullet. Uh, ah. I, I, think, I think that's an excellent bullet. You know, the back half is solid copper. So... Regardless of what happens at the front end, it's going to drive deep and penetrate well. But the front end is, uh, you know, it's a bonded uh, lead core front end, and so it mushrooms beautifully and holds together pretty well, very well, actually. Um, and in my experience, it's just deadly. Uh, pretty good you know, form factor on it, too. Uh, yeah, I think so. What do you think? Are you familiar with it? I have never used one. Oh, how do you like Ron, that? We must convert you. Yes, <laughs> those are well, excellent, excellent bullets. They're very accurate too, um, which is somewhat hard to accomplish in a bullet that sophisticated. That you know, that is so aerodynamic, mm -hmm. has bonding. You know, the the element of bonding is it throws a, a little bit of complications into supreme accuracy, um, but it's a very very accurate bullet and. I've shot, um, you know, everything from uh, from an ostrich, which I shot in the head at 280 yards in Africa off the sticks. <laughs> My tracker was impressed. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Uh, I shot a baboon at 413 over there that thought he he, uh, he was raiding some sheep or uh, yeah, some sheep lambing pens. He and his little troop, and we went after him and. His ladies all dove in this canyon and hid, but he crossed the canyon and, and hopped up on the other side and sat down and looked back smug as can be, knowing that he was out of range, and he, he wasn't, wasn't out of range. <laughs> 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 and uh, let's see, my son shot an eland with that bullet. Uh, this was all out of a 280 Ackley improved. They're 155 grain terminal ascent, federal uh -huh. premium. Yeah. That's the bullet he killed that, uh, that bull with today at 520 yards. And well, that sounds superb good. Performance. Tell yeah. me, I am familiar with the uh, trophy bonded bear claw. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this sounds similar. So it's a descendant of that. Okay. Yep. It's the the most advanced uh, aerodynamically uh, model of that line of bullets in that configuration. Okay. Yep. Well, in that case, I can see where it would work because I sure enjoyed the success I had with those. It just they never failed me. It was a great bullet, yes. trophy bond. Yeah, they're legendary for for just that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, listen, it's getting bedtime around here. I don't know where you are, but <clears throat> probably getting time for you to eat supper at least. I should think after a oh, day of yeah, chasing whatever. wild cattle and bringing home the meat. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna have some yeah, fresh liver, are you? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we uh we left the liver on the mountain and I hope that doesn't offend anybody, but uh we had three pack horses loaded pretty hard and we had uh about five thousand feet of very rough rocky terrain to descend with no trail, so Yeah. We left Can't the liver blame on the mountain. Hey, Aram, if folks want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? If there's anything you want to uh places people can go to find you. Do you have any books for sale? Do you have a website or anything like that? Uh, no books, no website. Um, I do a little bit of social media stuff. Um, you can find me just on either Facebook or Instagram. Just look up Aram Von Benedict. Uh, there's really not very many people with that name out there, so you probably won't go awry. <laughs> uh, you spell Aram, A-R-A-M? Yes, that's correct. Okay, Von Benedict yep. but with a D-I-C-T. K T B E N E D I K T. Yep. See, I, I would have gotten it K. wrong and never found you. So they can I find know. you on uh, <laughs> Instagram and YouTube at Aram Von Benedict. 
Instagram and Facebook. Yep. No YouTube. Yep. Cool. And then we do have, if you're interested in following along with our cowboying and ranching adventures, we also have Instagram and Facebook for that. Uh, Facebook is La Cienega Ranch. Um, that's three words, L-A, and then a space, and then Cienega, C-I-E-N-E-G-A, and then a space, and ranch. That uh, actually refers to the house, the, the land that we live on. It was a stagecoach station back in the 1860s through 80s. The house we live in is still that old stagecoach station. It's adobe um, and pretty cool. And La Cienega means the desert marsh or the desert seep. And so that's the name of this ranch. And there was a, historically, there were three seeps here that the stagecoaches would water up at and, and, the, and uh, you know, the, the passengers would rest up. Was that the old Butterfield stage line? No, this was, this was uh, not a main line. It was a secondary line that served a bunch of little towns across Arizona. Oh, okay. Yeah. Pretty interesting and then, stuff. Uh, let's see. Yeah, you bet. On Instagram, it's uh, Cienega Ranch with an underscore between the two words. Yeah. Aaron, I want to really thank you for visiting with us tonight. I know you're a busy rancher and you probably even haven't had your supper tonight yet. So thanks for your tolerance and telling us some exciting stories. Uh, I think most of our listeners will be pretty impressed with someone who lives out as wild as you do and raises a family out there, but more power to you. I hope we can visit again someday. And I think you and I ought to look into taking that Sitka blacktail hunt up there in Kodiak. Oh, that would be awesome. You bet. And it's yeah. my, my pleasure, Ron, to be on this podcast. You know, thank you for inviting me. You're, you're one of the great writers, in my opinion, and, and hunters as well. And those two don't always go together. Well, uh, I look up that. to you and respect, respect you a great deal. So thanks for yeah, doing All right. the you're, honor. Your, your check is in the mail for that one. <laughs> really? I might want to do that. <laughs> hey, folks, I hope you all enjoyed that interview as much as I did. That is quite an interesting fellow, that Arm. Uh, I'm going to look forward to reading more of his articles. Check him out on his uh, online sources that he provided for us. And I really appreciate you joining us. And thanks especially to our patrons. Uh, for everyone, this is Ron Spomer signing off. Hunt honest and shoot straight. where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, a mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.